Today's scripture reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 through 25, and you can find it on page four of your bulletin. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowds was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Oh God, would you show yourself to us, to everyone in the room? Would you reveal yourself in the deepest part of our heart that we might know you and in knowing you really come to know ourselves and what you've called us to be? In Christ's name, amen. Well, yesterday I was uh, headed to the church office because we had our Introduction to Grace Downtown seminar, and I saw Mike, who owns the pub next door, with a big um, truck full of mulch, and he was beginning to spread it around, and I said, Mike, you're, you know, getting out the, the spring supply, and he said, yeah, it's going to be 70 degrees this week, and it gave me hope. I said, there's hope. Um, you know, it won't be long before this city is blooming. And if you haven't seen Washington in the spring, you're in for a real treat. I mean, uh, the cherry blossoms, the tulips, uh, the trees. It's called the City of Trees. And uh, it's often mentioned that um, spring makes up for summer in Washington, right? The beautiful flowers make up for the heat that we have. But the city, in its full glory in its full bloom, can't come close to the fruitfulness that God envisions for his people, for those that trust in him. Uh, Jesus would say to his disciples, the Father 
desires that you bear much fruit. And this really goes back to the book of Genesis where God says to the man and woman and to all men and women, be fruitful and multiply. And by that, he's talking about more than having kids. He's talking about being fruitful in every area of our life, fruitful in our relationships, fruitful in our vocations, fruitful in our culture making, fruitful in our city building. This great vision of humanity that the Bible puts forth. And no doubt one of the saddest things to see is when that potential is wasted. When you see a young child caught in the cycle of poverty, unable to reach their potential, or a CEO who only lives for work. When people don't live up to the potential, the fruitfulness that God has called them to. It's sad when things don't bear fruit. I was thinking, uh, I read an article this week as this topic was on my mind about uh, why trees don't bear fruit, why fruit trees don't bear fruit. And there were three main reasons given. Uh, the first reason was this idea that uh, a tree can actually be over-fertilized or over-pruned, so all its energy goes into producing wood, but not fruit. And I thought, isn't it the case with us that we spend a lot of energy producing things that aren't fruit? A second reason was a tree could be hit by a late frost, and although it will bloom flowers and leaves, there's no fruit that sets in it. And again, I thought about our own hearts, how it's possible for us, right, for our hearts to get cold, for frost to get over our hearts, and although on the surface we may look like we're blossoming inside, there's nothing happening. Or lastly, one of the reasons a tree might not fruit is pollination. There are some trees that self-fruit, like a plum tree, but other trees like apple trees and pear trees need to be pollinated by at least two varieties. And many times we think we're plum trees, don't we? We think we can be fruitful by ourselves. But God reminds us we can only be fruitful in relationship with other people. All these things about fruitfulness we could think about. But Jesus here tells us there's a deeper spiritual reason why we don't end up being fruitful. And he teaches it through a fig tree, a temple, and a mountain. A fig tree, a temple, and a mountain. As he teaches us about fruitlessness and fruitfulness. So let's look at that together. First of all, what fruitless living looks like. Now, you would never expect that there would be so much controversy over a cursed tree. But if you study this passage and read commentators and theologians, you find that it is. In fact, one person said, this is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. Others have said, Jesus is just sowing forth vindictive fury here. What's the deal? Is Jesus just throwing a hunger tantrum like a two-year-old would? Is Jesus, why is, the, why is Jesus blaming the tree when it wasn't the season for figs? Lots of questions to get raised. But like uh, many difficult passages, a little study helps us understand it. It is true that this is the only miracle we have in the, the Bible that's destructive, rather, by Jesus. The only miracle in the Gospels that's destructive instead of healing. What could be the reason for it? Well, there's three things, I think, that give us insight. First of all, learning a little bit about fig trees. The second 
is learning a little bit about symbolism, and the third thing is learning a little bit about prophets. That helps us understand what's going on here. First of all, fig trees put out their leaves in the spring. But the way it would work is first a small little bud of fruit would appear, and then later it matures into a sweet fig. And so, basically, you could eat that small little bud. It wouldn't be great tasting, but it would nourish you. It wasn't the season for figs, but it was for the season for those small buds. Jesus, seeing the fig tree in bloom with all the leaves, expects to see that knob or that bud needed. He doesn't see it, and he then says, may you never bloom again. But again, was Jesus just mad at fig trees that day? What was going on? Well, this helps us understand a little bit more when we see what the symbolism of a fig tree was. In the Bible, the fig tree represents, does anybody know? Israel, right. Fig trees represented Israel, either the fruitfulness of Israel or the fruitlessness of Israel. And so as Jesus approaches the people of Israel, and already much has happened, he has come to the people of Israel. Some have received him, like his apostles and others. Others have not received him. The religious leaders have showed him opposition. The crowds have been interested in miracles, but not in him. And so Jesus says, you know, here I come upon this fig tree, and it reminds me of the fruitlessness of the people of God that I'm facing right now. But that leads to the third thing, the prophet. Both Jesus understood and people in the Scriptures understood that he was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet. And if you look in the Old Testament, prophets sometimes taught through object lessons. For instance, God called Jeremiah, Jeremiah to get a pot, a, a vessel, and break it before Israel to depict the fact that they had been breaking the commandments of God. But there were others even more shocking than that where God calls the prophet Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman to depict the fact that Israel was like an unfaithful bride to his people or to God. And then Isaiah was even called to preach stripped, possibly naked, to reveal not only the political uh, situation, but Israel's inner life. And so here Jesus comes before the people, and what does he do? He curses the fig tree before his disciples, as an act of prophecy to show the judgment, the warning of God for a fruitless spiritual life, a life that does not bear fruit. And there are a couple things about fruitless living that we can learn from this. First of all, that you can be more focused upon the leaves than the fruit, right? It's possible to be more focused upon the leaves than the fruit, that is wanting the illusion that I'm growing rather than really growing. Uh, last night, our family watched the uh, movie, Now You See Me, if you've seen that. It's actually a really enjoyable film, good film. If you haven't seen it, you might want to watch it. But it's a, it's a thriller, an adventure about four magicians that are called together by a mysterious benefactor. And I'll stop there because it'll ruin the story if I go any further. But throughout the movie, you hear this refrain that uh, the magician's main tool, his main tool is the art of misdirection, being able to put your attention over here because what they're really doing is over here. And that way, all of us have a bit of magician in us, don't we? We are a grand illusionists ourselves. We have the ability of misdirecting people's attention many times away from our fruitlessness in our lives and have them focus on something else. 
For instance, at work, we might love to give the impression that we're working when we're really not. You can read articles about how to do this. Let me give you some hints if you want to excel in this. <laughs> Always carry around a notebook and scribble. Ask a lot of questions. Have a decoy screen on your computer with work applications so you can flip back to it. Go to work with two jackets so you can always leave one in the chair. It gives the impression that you're always working. <laughs> Walk fast. Ask the boss if they've seen one of your coworkers. Leave to-do lists everywhere. Send late-night emails and sigh a lot, right? I'm working so hard, sigh a lot. Illusions that make us think that we're working when we're really not, right? Give the impression. But there's ways that we can do this spiritually as well, right? Ways that we can give the impression that we're doing better than we are. Maybe we hide behind the leaves of our past Christian experience. So we're always talking about our faith, but only in the past. Or maybe we hide behind the leaves of theological knowledge. Or we hide behind the leaves that we're dedicated in our service. Other people may blow off doing communion, but I, I come here and do the setup like I'm supposed to. Right? There are a lot of things that we can hide behind. Or maybe in our community group, those are small groups we have at our church, or small groups of prayer groups, times where we get vulnerable with people, we find that perhaps our goal is to leave others with a good impression about us rather than leaving them with the truth about us, how we're really struggling, where things aren't going well. We show one another the leaves, right, because we don't want anybody to see that I might not be bearing fruit. Or maybe you're someone outside looking into the Christian faith, and you consider yourself a spiritual but not religious person. But if you really look closely at your life, you would see that your spirituality isn't bearing much fruit. It's not having much impact on things like your job or your relationships. And so in all these ways, we can actually adopt this thing where we're like a plastic bowl of fruit. It can look attractive, it can look beautiful, but when you touch it and you bite it, there's not much there, right? Our spiritual lives can end up being like this. And that way, we're really operating from this idea that I will be fruitful, I will be fruitful if people are pleased with me, if people approve of me, if I can win the affection and the applause of people. That's one misguided way one way we can be fruitless. There's another way of fruitlessness, and that is where we confuse fruitfulness for activity. There was a lot of activity going on at that temple. There was a lot of activity going on in the religion of Israel. You know, what was going on with their rituals and their obedience, all these different things. They were a very busy, active people. And it's like the religions of the world, the religion of men, where sincerity ends up being equated with activity. And here what we're talking about is, I will be fruitful if I can stay busy. I will be fruitful if I can really be active. And it may be you're devoted not to religion, but to a good cause. Getting rid of cancer, pouring your life into your kids. You can imagine after the temple incident which we're going to talk about in a moment, the temple incident, that the money changers and the religious leaders going, what's the deal with Jesus? We're providing a service here. We're providing a service for the people so they can buy sacrifices, so they can worship God. Busyness in a good thing can mask itself 
its fruitfulness when it's not. One of the reasons we understand what was going on in Israel is the fig tree happens right before the temple incident. Jesus goes into the temple. The temple was supposed to be the meeting place between God and men. The temple was supposed to be the center of religious life, the center of worship. It was supposed to be the center of relationship between his people and God and them with one another. And yet when Jesus shows up, it's more like a shopping mall. Religious business, religious activity has taken over worship and relationship. There was a court called the Court of the Gentiles, and it was the place where the nations could come in. They, they couldn't be in the inner courts, but they could come in the outer court. And it was a place where they could seek God if they were after God. And Israel had the commandment that they were to be a light to the nations, but they couldn't even get in there. There was such busyness. So Jesus comes over as, again, another act of prophecy. He turns over the tables. John tells us he fashions a whip. He begins to drive people out of the temple. And what does he say? He says... It is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Why does this happen ultimately? Because it's this belief that basically being busy with my own business can be fruitfulness. It's fruitfulness on my own terms. And this is one of the things that sin does in our lives. God really knows how we can be fruitful. He understands what fruitful people look like, but you and I have our own version of that. I referred to it before. You know, we might think work is the thing that's going to make me fruitful in life. And so we exclude the other areas of our life, being a neighbor, being a son or daughter, being a husband or a wife. Fruitlessness excels in busyness but not evangelism. Fruitlessness excels in efficiency, but not mercy. Fruitlessness excels in many things, except the one thing that God would be calling us to do. I mean, you know, you think about this in practical ways. Um, you know, it, it's much easier. I remember as a, a, a parent of young kids, it was so much easier to help clean my kid's room than sit down for a couple minutes on the bed and just talk to them. Right? It's just easier to try to get things done. Or maybe it's easier for uh, me to just uh, answer my coworker by not looking them in the eye, you know, so that I might not be distracted. I have this idea, we have this idea, if I can just keep on keeping on, I'll be fruitful. Missing the big picture that God has for us. And so this tragedy is that here you have the one who is the temple walking through the temple, but no one wants to have any relationship with him. In fact, they want him out of the temple. The temple was the meeting place between God-man, and here you have the God-man who wants to dwell and commune with people, but they don't want any part of it. In the New Testament, it's said that the people of God are the temple of God. We are actually the place where God dwells. You are the temple of God. God will come and commune with us and be with us. What sort of temple are we? What sort of temple are you? But lastly, fruitlessness has another effect, and that is it crowds out people. It crowds out folk. I'd mentioned that, you know, the Gentiles couldn't get into the place where they could commune with God. This is one of the effects that happens. A fruitless life sees people 
as something important but not primary. This is why the law of God, you know, the Scripture says if you could put all the laws under two laws, it would be love God, a person, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor, a person, as yourself. God purposely says it's all about, as we talked about last week, it's all about people and relationships. And so I want your activity to serve that. I want your fruitfulness to serve that. You know, my job is to, um, I get paid to commune with God. I get paid to meet with God and have this relationship with Him. And I can tell you that being supported financially and being called and ordained to do that doesn't make it any easier for me than it does for you. I struggle every day to think to myself, it's okay for me to sit in the presence of God and be with Him, and if I do that, I will be fruitful in my life. It's so hard, isn't it? I mean, we end each day by asking ourselves, did I do enough? We feel guilty when we take any time off. God calls us to these things that just don't make sense in a city like ours. And it's a temptation away from fruitfulness. But let's move on to that. How do we then move away from fruitlessness to fruitfulness? And here we get to the mountain. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. It will be yours. Now, it's easy to pass over something in this passage. You you might even want to look at it as it's printed here. Because you notice this is a famous teaching about this idea of prayer and faith and moving mountains. And I think we've heard it so much we can miss that there's a little word that's very important there. He doesn't say move a mountain or the mountain. He says what? Move this mountain. He's talking about a particular mountain. He's talking about the Mount of Olives and the temple that's sitting on top of it. He's talking about a faith that can actually transform the dead religion that was happening among the people of God and the temple of God. He's talking about a faith that can actually move away from fruitlessness that's found in empty ritual and commandments and fruitfulness. That's what he's saying to his disciples. The mountain needs moved. How will it be moved? How will our mountain be moved? How will our fruitlessness be moved away from us so that we can have a true harvest? Well, he says what moves it is faith. What does that mean? Well, in John's account of this, after Jesus cleanses the temple, after he cleanses the temple, the religious leaders are furious with him, and they say, what justification from God do you have that you did this? What sign do you have that you did this for doing this? And this is what Jesus says. He says, This temple, uh, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. Now later during his trial, they would say he was making a threat against the physical temple, but they missed the point. The temple he was talking about was himself. 
The temple was Jesus. Jesus was referring to his death on the cross and his resurrection. And later, John tells us, the disciples began to understand this. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Do you see what I'm saying here about the faith? The faith Jesus was calling wasn't just faith generally in God's power. It wasn't faith and optimism. It was this idea of moving away from fruitlessness, moving away from this idea of approval and activity, and centering one's trust on the person in the work of Jesus Christ. That my faith would be grounded in a person, the Son of God, who came and accomplished my freedom and my salvation and my forgiveness. That is the beginning of fruitfulness. Where is your faith landing? Where is your faith centered? It's a very important question. Is it centered in platitudes about what God might do or not do? Is it centered in the values of, well, you know, I think this ought to happen because I understand God kind of works this way? Is it centered in theological ideas, or is it centered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ? This is the faith that leads to fruitfulness. Jesus talks about it in John 15. He says this, listen closely. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, in that, if we went on, Jesus says the abiding is basically this. I want you to abide in this fact that you have been loved with the same love that the Father loved me with. That's an amazing statement, he says. That God the Father, because you're in me, loves, loves you as much as he loves his Son. As much as he loves his perfect and glorious and obedient son, the Father loves all those that put their trust in Jesus. He says, I want you to abide in that love. I want you to live and dwell in that love. And then he also mentions to the disciples, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. That's forgiveness. I want you to abide in the fact that your righteousness is no longer in your daily deeds. It's in what I accomplish, my obedience. Your righteousness is actually in my forgiveness, unconditional forgiveness that doesn't go up and down. I want you to abide in that. And for the person that trusts in that, they will be fruitful. Why is that? Well, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's our failure to trust in the love of God. It's our failure to trust in the acceptance of God. It's our failure to trust in a righteousness that's not ours. Those are the things that cause us to be fruitless. Those are the things that drive us to overwork. We had a faith and work event, um, you know, last week, and it was such a rich time uh, as our panel was up there. I was writing down what they were saying. Uh, and one thing, one of the panelists said, I thought for so long that overwork would get me fruitfulness. And God began to teach me that when I didn't overwork, he would bear fruit in my life. Even if other people around me were working like crazy, he would bear fruit in my life. 
And then someone else asked one of our panelists who was single, well, don't you think if you're single, you know, you're going to be more prone to overwork because you have all the time? And, and uh, she very wisely said, you know, I really think it's not an issue of station in life. It's an issue of the heart. What have you got in your heart? I mean, you know, the reason you and I become fruitless is because we're not trusting in the love in the favor and acceptance of God. That cha greatly changes things. And so what I'm saying is we have a radically different view of fruitfulness put before us between the world and the kingdom of God. The world says this, I want you to gain approval through activity. I want you to work hard to get yourself in the pleasure of people so they'll slap you on the back and open up the doors and so you can grow. It's basically, I will be fruitful if I can get in people's good graces and I can work myself to death. The gospel says the exact opposite. Fruitfulness will come as you steep yourself in the love and grace of God and do something that seems so passive and useless. Pray. Pray. That's what he talks about, doesn't he? It's not, a, connect, uh, it's not a, a non sequitur when Jesus basically moves from this idea of being fruitful, asking and then saying, whatever you ask of the Father, pray. The way you and I will begin to be fruitful is this. It's very simple. We could all start doing it tomorrow. It'll be a battle, but it's simple. For us to take time in prayer, sustain prayer, and I'm not talking you know, minutes and hours. I'm just talking focused prayer. Maybe it's for five minutes. Maybe it's for 10 minutes. Focused prayer where I saturate myself in the love, the acceptance, the holiness, the affection of the Father for me. And if you and I begin to do that, it starts our day and our fruitfulness in a whole different way. It make, I make choices. I make different choices. I don't do that. I do do this. And I begin to actually be fruitful in my relationships. Work becomes what it's supposed to be. Whatever you and I are called to be, no matter how task-oriented your job is, whatever it would be, do you understand that when you and I stand before God and he looks at the tree for fruitfulness, he's going to measure it according to love God and love your neighbor. That's what he's looking for. You know, did my work produce? It may have, I may have won the loss, you know, uh, the case. I may have won the trial. Did it result in love for my neighbor? I may have won the deal. I may have got my candidate elected. Did it result in love for my neighbor? You know, I may have got through the day teaching my students. Did it result in love for my neighbor? I may have gotten through a week of ministry. I may have done a lot of stuff and met with a lot of people and worked on my sermon so I could stand up before you and not look like a fool. Did I love my neighbor? This is the fruitfulness that God is calling to you and I. The fruitfulness is not demonstrated primarily in the accomplishments. It's demonstrated in the relationships. This is where the Lord takes us. This is the fruitfulness that Jesus longed for with his people. <laughs> Jesus went to that table. You know, one time he wept over Jerusalem. He longed to be in that sort of relationship with his people. He longs to be in that relationship with you. God made you. God created you. God sees you. God longs for you. He sent his son to earth to live, to die, to raise from the dead so he might 
be in relationship with you. This is the Christian gospel. This is what he's called us to. I was having a conversation with my mom this week, and uh, she had to go to a funeral, and she said, uh, you know, there are kind of good funerals and not-so-good funerals. And uh, she is uh, someone that's an agnostic. She's not someone that has faith. I was interested in her statement because she was able to notice. She said, you know, there are those funerals I've been to where it's really joyful, and the people stand up, and they talk about the relationships, and there's something just different about that. I think some of the best funerals I've ever been to have been followers of Christ that have been fruitful in the way I've been talking about. I went to one a couple years ago. There's a guy in his 40s that battled cancer for years and died. I mean, it was like a, a festival of fruit. That place was blooming and blossoming. We're at a funeral. And it's in not just one area of life. It's different. It's uh, his, his school, his kid's school uh, classmates and teachers are there. Fruitfulness in, in his kid's school, a result of this. His employers were there standing up. Fruitfulness in his job through his relationship and what he did. Friends that he had for a long time and new friends were there. All this fruitfulness in his life. And here he had died and gone to be with God, and he was still being fruitful, and it's still bearing fruit. I mean, when you come to know the God of heaven and earth, you will be fruitful even after you die. This is what God offers to you and I. Let's pray that he enables us. God, thank you for beginning a good work in us and promising to bring it to completion. Thank you for wanting to deliver us away from a fruitless life into a fruitful life. Thank you, Jesus, for being our vine. Help us to abide in you. In Christ's name, amen.